0: I titled the sermon, The Law and the Gospel. The Law and the Gospel, chapter 16 in Luke, verses 14 through 18. And here's what's amazing about these verses. They're all connected. In the ESV Study Bible, it's a standalone section titled Divorce and Remarriage. But friends, these verses all flow together, especially verses 14 through 18. They they form a bridge between two parables. And as we unfold this, I think you'll see the connection. Uh, Otherwise, you're just cruising along with Jesus, and then all of a sudden, out of the blue, he starts talking about divorce and remarriage. Um, And so uh, just have that in view up front. That's where we're going to land, but let's lay the foundation and, and see how Jesus gets us to that place. Okay, this is where we left off last week and I want this to be ringing in our ears. Okay, so listen to the last verses just before this. This is verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Key words here, hold on, hate and despise. This. These are important words that carry forward for us today. And then Jesus just very... Frankly, says you cannot serve God and money. They are opposing masters. They both will want your heart, and only one can get it. You have to decide who will be the master. And so now, these verses, I titled this The Sneering. That's a fun word the Sneering of the Pharisees. Verse 14 The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things, and they ridiculed him. They ridiculed Jesus as he taught these things. So, first of all, we are given a glimpse now into the hearts of these Pharisees. They are uh, kind of unmasked as lovers of money. These These are the people in the crowd. Now, this is a fascinating thing because many times it was the Sadducees who were accused of this. They were the upper crust of the society. They were the movers and shakers, kind of the rich tended to be in the more Sadducee realm, and more common men were in the Pharisee world. They were just the more normal guys. Now, the, the Sadducees were knocked a lot for their power and their influence and their money and all of these things, but the Pharisees, not so much. They were tend to, to be criticized for their letter of the law, their attention to the minutia and their judgment of others and uh, their pride and these types of things. So you can't separate them totally, but I find it fascinating that this group, at least, of Pharisees is described as lovers of money, lovers of money. What's happening in their hearts as Jesus presents this dichotomy? You cannot serve God and money. You have to choose You're going to love one and hate the other, be devoted to one and despise the other, and they sneer, they sneer. Well, the Pharisees were masters of comparison, day in and day out. They would hold up their works of righteousness against others, and in that comparison, they sought to win. They would feel good about their righteousness, their obedience, and they would prefer to point out all those who fell short because the more that they did the more they felt great about themselves ironically their righteousness was filth before the lord but they didn't concern themselves so much with that it was it was this direction the masters of comparison were at work and i think there may have been some of this happening with jesus well it's easy for you to say jesus you're poor right The poverty of Jesus is is on display. In his ministry, he is relying on the donations of others as he makes his way around. He's eating meals, trusting the Lord to provide meal by meal, right? Birds of the air have nests, the foxes have hold, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He's trusting the Lord for his daily provision, and he doesn't have a lot of money in the bank. The Pharisees, on the other hand, apparently these Pharisees, we're sitting pretty good. And the assumption that was operating many times in this day was if you are right before the Lord, he will bless you financially. If you are of standing and you're a good citizen, you're going to do well in in business and God will bless. So rich people must be righteous people. And poor people, well, you just get what you deserve and apparently they must have done something or whatever. The poor are not poor because they're unrighteous. The rich are not rich because they're righteous. But this comparison game was back and forth. And they were sneering at Jesus. Which means, if they were choosing their money, then they were haters of God. If in fact they were lovers of money, what Jesus has just said is their devotion to money made them haters. Of God it's hard to consider that you know sometimes what looks so impressive in the eyes of man is not impressive at all in the eyes of God Jesus saw right through their little charade here now this the word ridiculed or sneering it means to mock or sneer uh, to treat with contempt and it's more than just an attitude. It, it most literally in, in, in encourages the wrinkling of the nose. That's what it's carrying. The wrinkling of the nose. Okay. Now, I think just to experience the text this morning, we should have a communal wrinkling of the nose. Okay? Now, now, here's the thing. Sneering and ridicule, that's not a silent thing either. I think the Pharisees were making some noise with this. They were... They were interrupting Jesus in this sneering, this ridicule, maybe with words, but at least with, or you know, something. So, on three, we're going to make our collective sneer. Whatever sound or facial expression you make, I wish I could record this. It'd be great. Okay, but together on three. One, two, three. It was great. That was great. Some of you guys are way too good at that. (laughs) To wrinkle one's nose. They ridiculed Jesus. Now, the irony of this is amazing. They have hearts that are devoted to money. They are haters of God in that And the one that God has sent, God himself in the Son, is standing before them and teaching them, holding out the light of hope, calling them to repentance and turn. And what do they do? They sneer. They ridicule. The lifeline is in front of them. And their hearts are exposed. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Hmm. He goes on to say this, Jesus said to them, you, Pharisees, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Oh, these words are very direct. These are man-fearers. These Pharisees are are those who, they justify themselves before men. What what does that mean? To justify is to declare righteous. Well, they're making self-declarations of righteousness in front of men. Their goal is that others would be impressed with their quote-unquote righteousness. Jesus says, you're lovers of money, you're haters of God, and you're sneering at the Son himself. Man-fearers. Lest we're too hard on the Pharisees, friends, all of those things can easily be true of us if we're not careful. We can so easily fall prey and have our hearts wooed by the the mighty dollar. We can so easily fall prey to the fear of man being so concerned about what other people think that we don't even concern ourselves with the Lord who knows our heart. You can't hide your hearts from God. Jesus is saying, (laughs) he's... Ironically, He is God. He's right there. He sees right through them. But the Father sees as well. He knows them, not just knows about them. He's not like, oh, oh, yeah, I know His name. No, He knows them through and through, thoroughly. He knows their motives. He knows their longings. He knows their pride. He knows all the corruption of their hearts. And He sees at this point nothing noble, There's nothing commendable that's operating here. It is all self and sin and death. As much as the men around them would applaud their righteousness, it's not applaudable to God. He said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. And then he says, for what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now there's a lot happening in these these words here that he says. So you have the Pharisees who are feeling really good about themselves because they, you know, they're they're well thought of by the people all around them, and the people around them, well, they see this this righteousness and they can't help but be impressed. The problem is, it's a facade, it's exterior. It's all duty and and law and obedience and polish it up on the outside. The inside is filled with dead man's bones. Hmm. An abomination. An abomination. That's some strong language that Jesus employs here. The word abomination means it's detestable. It's a detestable thing. It's an abhorrence. And here's what's amazing. There's some wordplay that Jesus is using. They're sneering, and Jesus says, "What, what you're doing is an abomination in the sight of God. It is a great offense to the nostrils. That word can carry that connotation. So in a sense, Jesus is saying, well, I see how this goes. You can wrinkle your noses at me all you want, but my Father right now is wrinkling his nose at you. Now, obviously, we're using anthropomorphic language to speak of the Father who doesn't have a nose. God is the Father's spirit. But in that sense, that's what we're, we're, he's saying to them. It's ironic. You turn your nose up at me, but your righteousness is an abomination to the Father. Jesus knew how to be extremely direct. Now, are, are these loving words? They are loving words, friends. Think. These, these men were lost in their own self righteousness and pride. They needed someone to reach in and, and wake them up. Guys, do you realize what you're doing? It, you just have to wonder did any of these Pharisees look inside and say, hmm, there is some inconsistency going on here? There is some hypocrisy. Only by God's grace. Would those words land? False religion, friends. False religion is obsessed with money. It will take money as God and use God to get it. And and some of the worst are those that, that will employ sanctimonious shows in order to make money. You don't have to look far to see those. False religion is populated by people who downplay the righteousness of Christ and broadcast and make a big deal about their righteousness, their worthiness. And lots of comparisons, then, lots of judging takes place in that world. False religion is filled with people who sneer at Jesus, they turn up their nose at the Word of God. We need a new word, right? We need a fresh word. We need a word from the Spirit. How about a word that fills my pockets? You see how this goes? There's nothing new under the sun. Lovers of money, inventors of evil, haters of the sun, haters of God. False religion. It happens on this day all around the world. It happens. It was happening back then. The most religious were the most abominable in the sight of God. Not impressed, Jesus said. Not impressed. We shouldn't be either. We need to be discerning, friends. Be discerning. Be aware. There are people who are trying to use Jesus to get rich. And they're quite successful. If you haven't seen that that American Gospel documentary, please watch that. Please, it'll open your eyes. It'll just unmask so much of this stuff. There's nothing new under the sun. Now, the misunderstanding of the Pharisees, verses 16 and 17. There's a big misunderstanding going on. The law and the prophets, Jesus said, were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Oh, man. These verses are tough to figure out. What does that mean? Well, we're going to get there. But first, let's consider this This transition here the law and the prophets jesus said are were were until john that's john the baptist since then the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it so jesus points back to the ministry of john the baptist jesus is in the context of talking about how important it is to keep the 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 lord as the master his commands should be our commands that we obey. We should not bow to the mighty dollar, the money. The transition that happens in the ministry of John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, is huge. We're moving from Old Covenant to New Covenant reality. I mean, this is like the parting of your Bible, Old Testament to New Testament. We're in the gospel now. We've got Jesus on the scene. It's a baptism of repentance and anticipation of the realization of of the very words John spoke when he saw Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God, He's here. And He takes away the sins of the world. There was so much transition, fulfillment, I mean, massive shaking going on. And you gotta understand, I mean, that's hard for folks who have only known law to understand the fullness of what has been taking place in this short period of time since John hit the scene, and Jesus is on the scene now. They all agreed that John the Baptist was a a prophet of God. That was not debated. I mean, it was assumed. Uh, Absolutely, of course he was a prophet. But what are you going to do with him? Because his ministry pointed to Jesus, and they didn't like Jesus. So they were, they were, really struggling with this concept of of the gospel of the kingdom and all of Jesus' teaching. They they revere John, but, you know, he's dead now. So what do we do? Follow this guy? They were not willing to do that, even though crowds and crowds were following him. We're moving from law into gospel. Now the good news of the kingdom is preached and everyone forces his way into it. What does this not mean? I mean, for all those who were in Sunday school this morning, right? Does anybody work their way into the kingdom? Perform meritorious deeds that qualify for acceptance by the Father? Absolutely not. No one has ever been saved that way. Ever. Never. So what are we talking about? Everyone forces his way into it. The word there, forces, forces. Uh, is either a middle or a passive. So, is being forced or forces. It depends upon how you interpret that. There's a couple different definitions uh, of how they, they, they use that, but I believe it refers to this. When Jesus told the parable about the treasure hidden in the field, what did the man do? How valuable was the treasure? He went and sold all that he had Held nothing back. Sell it all, and I'll buy that field. I will do whatever I can to gain that kingdom. I will hold nothing back. See, uh, deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. So the value of the kingdom is in view, and the call of discipleship is also. It's free, and it'll cost you everything. You you have to use a certain violence, as Jesus says in another passage. If there's a violent um, response that says no to self, no to pride, no to money, lovers of money, he says, right? There's, There's this, you have to understand, you can't hold on to this world and expect to enter the kingdom. You lay it all down. You let it all go. And follow me. Gospel of the kingdom is being preached, being proclaimed in their very ears. And they're saying, Ah, eh, we're good with our money. You see the connection here? No servant can serve two masters. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, that whole passage that's just got to ring in our ears. Jesus is calling not for fans, He's calling for followers followers who lay it all down the high cost of the kingdom is in view and it will require all of you all of you we talked this morning about the passage in james 2 about faith that has no works that's not actual faith right that that's a mirage you're you're fooling yourself if your faith is is so wimpy that there's no fruit there's no activity of employment of that faith You're not seeing the kingdom like these guys are. Jesus is saying, it's worth everything. Sell it all. I surrender all. No turning back. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. Okay, so now we move into this amazing transition here the the misunderstanding that's functioning is in the preaching of the kingdom there must have been a number of them that understood that somehow jesus was downplaying the law or abandoning it or just making it void the law was just old testament we don't have to worry about that believe it or not there are churches that literally throw the entire old testament out gotta be careful with this okay listen to what jesus thinks about the old testament the law it it is it is easier for everything in existence to pass out of existence than for one dot of the law to become void wow he's speaking about the permanence of the law how serious should kingdom people consider the scriptures Certainly the old and the new. This is what Jesus said. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you until heaven and earth pass away not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. So Jesus is not just talking about you know a few passages here, a few words here. He's talking about letters. Letters of the law. So if the Pharisees could ever be accused of being worried about the minutiae to a fault, Jesus is saying, you guys think you got minutia? I got minutia. The iota, the dot, all of that is inspired. All of that counts. Hmm. In a day where their love for money handled the text, added to the text, ignored the text, reshaped the text to their own purposes. Jesus comes and gives some clarity. This law is not passing away. I came to fulfill it. Jesus arrived on the scene and He brought the fulfillment. The whole law pointed to Him. All the sacrifices, all the prophets, they were all anticipating Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. The law is given to reveal the holiness of God, as we talked in Sunday school. What a perfect uh, companion text, that passage in Sunday school we studied to this passage. The law reveals the holiness of God, and it reveals our sinfulness at the same time. The law sets the standard. Be holy as I am holy. That's the call. And we say, uh, (laughs) We can't, nor do we want to, left to ourselves. The law never saved anyone. Think of this. There was no one ever saved by law-keeping. The law was not given for that purpose. The reason the law was given was to show us our need for saving and reveal the holiness of God. It points to the promised Messiah. Now, to illustrate his point... And this would have been, uh, they did not see this coming. I guarantee that Jesus just pulls this one. And this is fun to watch the brilliance of Christ. This is the mind of God engaging humanity at a level that is so above, so incredibly dialed in. Jesus goes to verse 18, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Now, he says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. And and, and at first we're just like, uh, wait, did we miss a chapter? I mean, did all, how did we get here? Jesus is talking about the law, its significance, its value, its application to our lives, and both in his day and in ours, friends, it's on. We are called to obey the law. Now, we're not bound to be law keepers because we're under grace. God has, has given the fulfillment of the law in Christ. But the law is good, as Paul says. It teaches us what obedience looks like, what the character of God calls us to in likeness. So how does it apply here? Well, a little context. We've got to understand that in this day, divorce and remarriage ran rampant. Through this culture, It was like crisis-level messed-up stuff. The Pharisees especially espoused this, this rabbinic tradition that gave them all kinds of permission at the drop of a hat to divorce their wife. Listen to what uh, uh, I think Leon Morris says in his commentary. The Pharisees were very permissive, allowing men to divorce their wives on the most trivial grounds— Rabbi Hillel, do you remember this rabbi? The last 50 years of of B.C., he lived, he taught, he was an extremely loved and influential rabbi in the Jewish culture. He taught that if a wife spoiled her husband's dinner, the man could divorce her. Rabbi Akiba took it farther and said basically if, if a man found someone that was prettier than his wife, he had grounds for divorce. This was practiced in Jesus' day. It was was a a, a nightmare scenario. And you just step back from this and, and ask yourself the question, just imagine if you're a wife and you are preparing dinner, what are you in the back of your mind thinking if it doesn't come out like you hope? You have no confidence that your husband won't look at that meal and say, that's it, I can't do this anymore, I'm done with you here's a certificate, you're no longer my wife. Can you imagine? That was normal operation in this culture. It is a dreadful marital dynamic. You burn the toast, you get divorced. It is repression of women. Imagine what that would have been like as a woman in this culture. You are depending upon the protection, the provision of the man, his land, his stake. I mean, you think of some of the chapters of Scripture that show us this dynamic. If you don't have a husband, you're in trouble. And if you burn the toast, you're out. How did they ever get here? From, from God's Word? No. 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 The Pharisees and their rabbinic leaders had massaged the text and reshaped the text, chosen some verses here, taken this out of context here, and then drawn conclusions that, hey, you can divorce whoever you want. You just got to do the paperwork. Just you got to make sure you do the paperwork and then you're good. Let me show you a text. We're in uh, Matthew 19. The Pharisees came up to test Jesus. They asked him this. So again, Pharisees. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Why did they ask him this as a test? Well, they wanted Jesus to disagree with Hillel, the popular rabbi, right? They wanted Jesus to be less popular. They wanted him to carry the line. And, well, he did. He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, now, don't miss this, he made them male and female. That's, That's as clear as day, is it not? He made them. This is is creative intention, and we're in the the context of marriage. What is marriage then? Well, he said, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh what God has joined together, let no man separate. Think of this. We need clarity in our day on marriage, what it is, what it's not. There it is. Popular or not, it's true. It's no surprise that sin would buck against that, push back against it, reject it. That's nothing new either. We need to just be clear and, and, and clarifying in a culture just so lost in confusion my goodness what a mess they said to him well why then jesus that did moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away that's a great question jesus responds and he says it's because of your hardness of heart that moses now don't miss the difference in words allowed not commanded Moses did not command this. He allowed it because of sin, because of hardness of heart, because of rebellion. He allowed it. He allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Jesus takes it back way before the law and puts it in the garden. He goes back to the origin of marriage. The first marriage, that's his his intent. That's what it is. Covenant keeping till death do us part. And then he says, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So we have a very clear statement from Christ about what marriage is and how it is to be handled and treated. And in our day, friends, we need to have just a a, a vision for this just to kind of survey this topic. There are two biblical grounds for divorce in the Bible. Only two. Hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery. It's not like you're you're, you're waiting for your spouse to to sin or to commit adultery and then, aha, caught you. You're gone. That's not how we are to be as believers. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 3, God says through his prophet to his people, you have played the whore. You have committed adulteries. Come back. I am a God of mercy. Oh, the heart of God is so rich on display in Jeremiah 3. Come back. He says, I have every right to give you a certificate of divorce, but return and confess your sin, and I will take you back. What an amazing God. We are to be like that, and I've watched that happen. I've seen God work in these ways. The horrors of of betrayal of the vow and finding these things out and all of the just shockwaves that it sins. And then the gospel happens and forgiveness is granted and sin is owned and confessed and joy and restoration is glorious. I've also seen the other hard-hearted, unrepentant adultery. To play the game, to go through the, the hoops and pretend that I'm repenting when I'm still committing adultery, I watched that unfold. It was tragic. And it ended in divorce. Desertion by an unbeliever is the only other ground for divorce. In the context, Paul argues or urges for the believing spouse to remain with the unbelieving spouse as a witness, such that through their uh, display of the gospel and grace and love and and keeping of the vow, that unbelieving spouse would, would see Christ and be saved. However, if the unbelieving spouse says, that's it, I'm done with you, I'm out, then he says, let it be, let it be. Your vow is fulfilled. And so, in these two scenarios, there is a fulfillment of the vow that I think is, is, is brought to completion. The big question then begs, what about remarriage? And I'll say this, there are men that I admire deeply where I disagree on this. I believe that if there is a fulfillment of the vow or a biblical ground for divorce, then there is a, a, an opening for remarriage. It's not automatic. It shouldn't come quick. But it should, I believe, be there because you are released from the vow. You're not constrained by that any longer. Now, others would, would argue differently that that vow is spoken once and it should remain there. And uh, so I, I would just say uh, when it comes to pastoral ministry, there are a few topics that are more complex and difficult than this. I just want to call us to this a God-honoring vision for vow-keeping. Let's just think about this. What's the heart of the vow? What is it that Jesus is calling us to? Because it's not just about duty. It's not just about, well, I said it. I guess I got to do it. What is that? But there's more. There's the heart. What's the very purpose of marriage? The purpose of marriage is to showcase the covenant-keeping love of Christ. Christ. That's the, the, the foundation of marriage. That's why it exists. There is a groom. His name is Jesus. There is a bride. She is the church. It's us. And the groom laid his life down to ransom and buy his bride out of her slavery and sin and darkness, and to present her on the wedding day in white, dressed in white in splendor, pure, and glorious, and they will live happily ever after. That's our future. It's what your marriage exists for, if you're married. Call attention to that, and don't quit, no matter what. Don't quit, because he said these words to us. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will never leave you or forsake you we can count on that friends we don't have a groom who's fickle-hearted if we burn the toast he doesn't say that's it i'm done with you you see the problem jesus is the groom and he's watching this marriage just wreak havoc on the glory of its purpose from the beginning to love cherish and honor for better for worse for rich or for poor, in sickness and in health, forsaking all others till death do us part. Those are spectacular words. What God has joined together, let no one separate. Good Shepherd Community Church, may we be a people who collectively work hard to esteem a God-honoring vision for marriage. May we be a a people who, not just when it's easy, but when it's hard, that's when the vow lives. I say this all the time when I'm counseling. Guys, this is why we had the vow in the wedding, right? It's easy when it's all rosy and warm and happy and romantic, The vow comes alive when it's the opposite of that. He hasn't left us or forsaken us. Persevere. Persevere. Tenacious perseverance. I have never, ever counseled for divorce. It has happened as I've worked with some, but I am of the opinion. That if there is any possible way forward, that is what we should try and try and try. Now, there are those two reasons that biblically divorce can happen, but we should be slow to get there. I want to land this by saying the grace and mercy of God is lavish. Some of you are here and you are right now feeling in your heart just the weight of the past and broken marriage, just broken relationships, maybe even decisions that you made that you look back on and say, that was sinful, was wrong. I want you to know this morning that God's mercy and grace can meet you where you are. There is forgiveness, friends. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. God is so good to us. There is a way to esteem the vow and at the same time experience the lavish grace of God for forgiveness. I would just call us to that. Here's the the other thing. For those who are married right now or considering marriage, the only way you will fulfill that vow is through His grace. I mean, really, think of that. Two sinners, a man, a woman, say I do, and then they make those kinds of commitments. I'm going to love you, cherish you and honor you. Whatever comes, only by grace, only with gospel functioning, only through the killing of my selfishness and sin and pride. That's the only way forward. And so we all collectively here find ourselves totally reliant on the grace of God to meet us and to call us forward in the truth of God that is clear, black and white. And we have an opportunity to shine, friends, to shine and point to our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has told us, I will never leave you or forsake you, never. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for our Savior Jesus. Thank you for the brilliance of his reasoning, even with sinners whose hearts were so hard. I thank you for the black and white nature of his teaching. It's clear. I thank you for his delight in your law, for his love of the prophets, for his care with your word. Oh, what a special a window it is into the way you see your word. Every letter counts. Help us to feel the same. Help us to esteem your word like Christ esteemed your word. Help us to delight to obey it, even when it's hard. Oh, Father, I think of those who are here in this room or even listening who would would find themselves in a situation that feels so hopeless, so overwhelming, so impossible. I pray for them right now that you would shower your grace upon them and enable them to keep the vow, no matter what, to persevere, never quit, never give up. Now, Lord, for those whose hearts ache over past sins, I pray that you would lavish your grace upon them through the finished work of Christ that is enough for all sin that they have committed. Reassure them of your love. Reassure them of their forgiveness in Christ. Even some maybe who need to go home today and acknowledge past decisions that, that were wrong and sinful and, and may they find freedom and, and, and no more condemnation or carrying of weight that they have been carrying around. All of these things are possible through your love and grace. And we see your son Jesus We thank you for him. We embrace his words today and we worship in Jesus' name, amen.